Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope, a podcast about business, well-being and chocolate. Hello and welcome to our latest episode of Hope and Patience. It's a treat to have you here. I'm not sure if it's just living in the metropolis of London, but wow, haven't the number of dogs around increased since the pandemic? All of which in my neighbourhood make their individual distinct voice heard in the form of barking and howling as soon as their owners venture out leaving them up behind. Don't get me wrong, I love dogs and have grown up surrounded by them in my childhood, but at times it sounds like an out-of-tune dogs chorus. So have any of you bought a dog for company over lockdown or spent more time with your hound than before and realised their diet and lifestyle could do with an overhaul? Today's guest is a co-founder of an award-winning subscription-based dog food business, personalised to your dog, whatever its make, model, health condition, you name it. After only five years, they had a revenue of more than £30 million and attracted food giant Nestle's Purina Pet Care to snap up a majority share. Hitting the top 30 spot in the Sunday Times Top 100 Best Small Companies to Work For in 2020 and chalking up an average of 4.7 on Trustpilot with 28,000 reviews, this co-founder has clearly ticked the box of making it. What's great to discover is that 50% of their leadership team are women. And to give us all hope, it started out in a flat in Richmond. So time to introduce our guest, James Davidson, co-founder and CEO of Tales.com. Hello and welcome to H&P, James. Hi. Hi, Amelia. Thank you for that. And thank you very much for inviting me and wanting to speak to me. It's wonderful to have you here. So Tales.com... James, was created with what must be the ideal dream team of co-founders yourself, and we'll hear a bit of your story in a minute, Graham Bosher from Grey's and Love Film, Joe Inglis, former Blue Peter vet, Steve Webster, Amazon, Mark Holland, Exupla software developer, Catalinger, Innocent, Karen Freeman, the Arts Alliance, and last but not least, Paul Cook from Grey's. Would you be able to share with us how and why you guys came to create Tales.com? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, well, we, we got together in 2013 and we launched in 2014. Uh, so it was uh, around about a year. Uh, Joe had the idea. Uh, so his background as a vet, he, he, he could see this opportunity for a, a food that was tailored to the individual needs of a particular dog. And, and actually, dogs are the most diverse mammal species uh, on the planet. So very, very different needs. But so many dog foods really just cater as for the average. Um, so he'd, he'd had the idea. He was introduced to Graham, who, as you mentioned, had been one of the co-founders at uh, Grays.com and Love Film before that. So he had a lot of experience uh, in uh, building a subscription business from the start. Um, and the rest of us had, had worked in either early stage or high growth digital or food businesses. So, um, yeah, it's kind of you to call it uh, uh, the, the ideal team. I think there's, it's certainly a, an ideal team. There's lots of different ways to, to, to bring a great team together. And I see lots of, lots of startups and lots of particularly successful ones who've managed to do that. But uh, definitely that helped to underpin our success, the different experiences we each brought to it. So what's your background, James, in, you know, before Tails.com and and how did you guys bring Tails.com to life? 
So my, my background, um, I started, I, well, I studied chemical engineering and then I like to know how things work, sort of curious as to what's going on under the under the bonnet of things. And uh, chemical engineering seemed like a, it was process engineering, it was really about how things are made. And uh, and so, so I studied that at university, got quite a shock when I turned up and realised actually engineering is just maths. Um, <laughs> but uh, managed to stick it, stick it out, get to the end and then... Rather than joining one of the big chemical companies or petrochemicals, oil and gas and so on, I uh, actually joined a Unilever in consumer goods because I was much more motivated and interested in the process by which the everyday products that we're all using are made and come to market. And particularly because they're always changing and improving as part of a uh, progress, but also competition with each other, whether it's household cleaning or laundry products or personal care. So I thought that would be a fascinating area to work in. And but ultimately, after nearly six years at Unilever, I actually got, looking back, I realised I was quite bored with the conveyor belt of the graduate management training and then the types of roles you'd go through to build out an experience of a manager in a large organisation like that and then sort of progress up the ranks over the years. And, and so my wife and I, who, who we'd met at Unilever, she was in, in HR, we left on career break uh, to do some voluntary work and travelling in Central and South America Oh wow! Um, and on, it, was, it was one of the for me personally, and and I think Jenny would say the same. But it was a complete pivot point in life of, of the direction that we were going and what we found was important. And um, and and for me, that was on, on that expedition it's with an organisation called Rally International. You, you may have yes, heard, yep. heard of. So it goes back to the eighties in in the UK, and mm-hmm. um, we were staff on an expedition. So I joined Innocent Drinks then, and as they were just getting grocery distribution and, and starting to to grow at the next scale and uh, had amazing seven years at Innocent. Um, fun, fantastic company to be part of then and, and as, it, as it still is now. But yeah, but ultimately after seven years at Innocent, great experience, lots of great people to work with, really exciting journey. I knew I wanted to go earlier stage again and, and do the part that, I, that I'd missed at, at Innocent. And so um, I'd known Graham for a couple of years. Uh, he got in touch to say he'd met this guy, Joe, who had a great idea and they were going to start a business. Did I want to come and have a chat and see if I wanted to be involved? And that was about August 2013. And uh, the moment I met Joe, we got on incredibly well. Uh, he was really impressed by him, incredibly creative, a smart guy uh, with an idea for uh, food for that would be tailored to individual dogs. That I knew it would be super hard for us to be to figure out how to make and make it um, affordable for people. Uh, and to cope with that complexity of an individual food made just for each dog at the sort of scale that we had ambition to build it to. Um, but overcoming those challenges and making that possible was the kind of uh, challenge that I personally wanted to be be part of solving. So um, so that's that, that was my story of how, how, uh, how I came to be at Tales.com. And why only dogs? Why not cats or other pets? Yeah, great question. And in the early days, it, it was all about dogs and cats, and hence the name. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, so our original business plan was for dog and cat, uh, dry food, wet food, yep. and treats for both species. And uh, and and by the time I'd left Innocent and and was working full time with Joe and Graham and, and and the other co-founders that were starting to to arrive, it was was about October time. And we, so we were, we were working on dog and cat, but by Christmas we'd realised that if we had any chance of getting this thing launched, we'd have to focus on one species, and, and we chose dog. Um, and Because in those days, there was nobody really doing uh, the direct-to-consumer pet food that's to any degree personalised. 
there were a few very small businesses here or there, but nobody was really doing, a, um, you know, the kind of sign-up flow we have, a consultation to understand the needs of the dog that's, that you can see in quite a few businesses now. But at that time, we were having to create that from, from first principles. So trying to do all of that creation and invention for two species was, was, would have just taken too long. It's a real five-star service for dogs. It's incredible. Do you know, it's, um, that, that we spent so much time in the flat in, in Kingston in the early days. It's, it was an elder house that overlooks the John Lewis car park, and it's a, <laughs> it's a lovely spot to be. We, we'd spent so many hours there, and in, in, well into, into the evening and, and nighttime, trying to design this, um, this experience this, and this feeding system that would give just just take away all of the burden of choice and responsibility of choosing the right food from for dog owners and help them get exactly the right nutrition for for their dog and to make that an experience that you know was a wow real wow factor not just from the first moment you arrived on the website but also when your when your box was was delivered and you'd open it up and and experience sort of have this amazing unboxing experience well don't you have sort of seven to ten percent of the market share yeah, we must be, but well, I don't really track those sorts of numbers. But I, I, as I understand that in the UK, yes, as a brand, we're in we're in that sort of territory. It's pretty good. But I mean, what surprised me, James, was I heard that the early days of the startup journey were far from smooth, and after a couple of months, it seemed the business may not survive due to the customer acquisition costs being way too high and the lifetime value being too low. How did that get missed when you were doing the financial planning and, you know, you got investors on board despite that? Yeah, so I think the the investors that we got on board at the start were really taking a decision to invest based on a a plan, whether they believed we as a team could deliver that plan. And so until we actually started acquiring customers in any sort of meaningful numbers, we were still more living on hope and and a dream and the potential than the reality. But as soon as enough customers are coming through that there is a, a consistency in, in the data that, that we were seeing, that we realised that, it, that the, the numbers weren't working, then uh, then that's when the, the, the cold hard reality hits. And that was a yeah, it was a really difficult time. Now, pretty much every startup, I, I would imagine, uh, or new venture with it for a large business, existing mm-hmm. business, anything that's new, the chances of it working just as you expect it to. <laughs> yeah when it first goes goes live and goes to market, gets into the hands of actual customers, is of course actually incredibly low. There's going to be a process of iteration and change to find product market fit, essentially. And, and we absolutely had to go through that, that, uh, that stage. How did you flip it back, you know, the right way? So I alluded to before how we got quite into trying to create this amazing experience for customers. And what actually happened was in that period of the project, the build, we focused so much on what we could do and then trying to make happen the things we thought were really cool and would be really great, that we actually lost touch with potential customers. And as we were building it, we kind of got in this zone of obsession about building this most amazing product that we could and actually lost touch with the very people who would actually would be the ones who you would need to think, yeah, this is a great product, I want to buy it. And so when we launched, there were elements of our product that just wasn't quite what people wanted. There wasn't enough opportunity for customers to contact us and talk to us and understand how we were doing what we were doing, when their next deliveries would be due and all these sorts of things that meant this perfect system 
wasn't actually so perfect once we once we put it out into the real world. So we solved it actually by starting to re-engage with customers and really understand what was what was not working, and then either take those elements out of the proposition or, or fix them. I mean, it's almost embarrassing to share that with you now because it sounds so simple and so obvious. But I think many mistakes that um, that, that that we make in business and in life is based on some on getting distracted as, as we were by getting too engrossed in what was what was possible rather than what was actually be appreciated by customers um, or, or by assumption and, and and I think we were guilty of, of both of those things in the early days. What would you say has been the major growth trigger? I mean, is a huge amount down to data and analytics and it being algorithm driven? Yes, it is, but it is a combination of all of all the components. I mean, the fact that there were eight of us who got it started is, I think, is one of the sort of is representative of that, because we had software engineers, uh, we had a vet, uh, we had supply chain experts. You know, we had we had brand and creative and performance marketing on the data side. So, I think it really took all of those different skills to come together to solve all of the problems of different areas in a business model that hadn't been done before and then driving it to a success and reaching this sort of inflection point of the curve of growth and really accelerating. Um, so coupling the, the data heavy insights that a D2C business trading over the internet is able to have alongside the older school um, or qualitative uh, uh, methods of understanding consumer behaviours and likes and dislikes, coupling the two of them together was, has always been the most powerful way for us to understand what we need to do to, to do a better job for customers. And on the Purina investment side, James, I mean, you were talking about Innocent and how it sort of maintained its individuality away from Coca-Cola owning it. How has it changed? How's Tails.com changed since Purina's investment? I think that the changes we've undergone at Tails.com have since since their investment, which, which was really a point of our Series B fundraise, have actually been agnostic of who that investor was. So they've all been related to the fact that we've need, that we've been scaling up. So there'll be changes about the, the, the number of people we have, having to hire more people who actually have more experience, so some more senior hires coming in, the ways of working and our processes for how we communicate or prioritise make decisions. All of those things have changed as we have scaled and grown, and a Series B funding round sort of has given us the fuel to grow and go through those stages. But actually... Perina's investment has, I think, had relatively little direct impact and certainly our association with them mm-hmm. on how we work and how we operate because it was as much in their minds as ours that we didn't want to change. We didn't want the fact that Perino might invest to be a reason that we would change culturally or focus or anything. Were you expecting Perina to come on board at such an early stage in the business? Was that part of the plan? No, it wasn't the plan, and uh, we had a, they they got in contact with us, and um, and back in twenty sixteen, Mel and I had 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 a first meeting with them, and uh, were quite struck actually by the similarities in our in in our values as we define them, and, and but also just the just the personalities of the people we met, we we really liked them, and thought these one day these could be great investors. So we kept the loose conversation going. I'd meet for a coffee every quarter or something like that, and then at our as our Series B funding round approach, they were very clear that they would like to be part of the conversation. And we and the advisors and everybody who was involved in that funding round 
generally thought it's far too early. They, you know, they, they, they won't be the right people to take investment from at that point. And, uh, and we didn't really expect that to be the outcome. But because of the strategic alignment in what we were doing and what particularly Chuck called Bernard, who is the, the CEO of Prina for the Eminem region, his, his vision for what PetCare was becoming and how a business model like Tales.com and the role it was playing in driving that change, but the role it would be playing in the future of pet care was so clear and so compelling, I think, internally within Nestle that it helped drive the organisation to actually put forward the right kind of approach for making that investment. So part of that was the, the, the amount they were prepared to pay to buy out the financial investors. But, but actually, somewhat more importantly than that, was their vision for how the, the independent, autonomous operating model for Tales.com would work post-investment, which which I think surprised everybody, not just how keen they were for it to be separate upfront in principle, mm-hmm. but also since that investment, how how separate it has remained. I, I'd say Nestle have worked harder to avoid uh, the distraction of trying to trying to support, but are actually causing um, difficulties. And they've worked even harder than that than, than we expected. And that I think it definitely feels like we've got the best of both worlds in that if we need support, let's say a better understanding of consumers in a particular market and what the landscape is of that market, or we need, we need funding or, um, or, or, or just actually adv- advice from people who know what some of the challenges are in the market, I'd say around Brexit or something like that, then, then we've got, it's like having a big brother that you can just call on or big sister for advice. Yeah, I think it's wonderful because fundraising can take so much time and so much energy. And it is, it's, I remember when I had my chocolate business, it, it, I would just be taken out of the business if I was doing fundraising. And so to have, as you say, this big brother, big sister around must be a really big relief. James, moving on to the pandemic, uh, more and more people have, have been become dog owners over the pandemic. And it appears now that supermarkets are apparently struggling to keep up with demand for the dog food, which is triggering a national shortage. What impact has the pandemic had on Tails.com? And have you suffered from shortages? Uh, Yeah, it's been so many dimensions on how it's affected us. So from, yeah, purely in terms of from a sales point of view, it, it has helped us sell more because in the early days, people were there were shortages on shelf as people stockpiled. And remember back when you, you know people stock, stocking up on toilet paper, and then you couldn't get eggs and bread and flour. Yeah, I mean surreal. <laughs> it was, and, and pet food was in that same category twelve months ago. So this, the shelves were bare, and then um, so people were going wherever they could could get it, and of course we benefited from that alongside anybody really who was selling on, selling online that was really just mostly a spike and a you know sort of one-off ev- event mm-hmm. and then uh, but then in the background people actually if I don't need to go to the shops I'd rather not so as as we've seen increase in Ocado and online groceries deliveries so e-commerce of, of other typically grocery or staple items have uh, has also continued which which is something that's definitely helped us in the UK because we're, in, we're quite a well-known brand in the UK now and that with that goes a level of trust and so people are more confident about switching to us than they would be if it were if we were if it were five years ago and we were relatively unknown. So it's helped in that regard. Did you find your European market also picked up with sales during the pandemic or new customers? 
to some extent, but actually overall, because in the European markets where we trade, we're a relatively unknown brand, then, it, then we did benefit from this to the same degree as we did in the UK. So it's harder for people to take the risk on switching to something if you you know if you've never heard of it and you and you don't know much about it and we're earlier in our journey in those markets so that would be the case there also the delivery network and infrastructure so courier delivery network in the uk is incredibly well advanced i wouldn't be surprised if it's one of the most advanced in in, in the world how is tails addressing sustainability and supporting climate change with the considerable amounts of packaging that are obviously required and also as we've just discussed as all the distribution arm too yeah great great question so we one of the things that, that we're focused on from a sustainability point of view we call it nose to tail nutrition so <laughs> from the the food and the the, the ingredients that we use the are often particularly the um, the protein sources it's because meat being one of the biggest contributors to carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases the the meat that we use comes from the parts of the often the parts of the animal that we as humans choose not to eat, which ironically are often the most nutritious parts. Yeah, the best the bits. Well. They're often the best bits. Yeah, and in other cultures, that's not the case in all around the world. In other parts of the world, so uh, by using those in in pet food, then uh, actually there isn't a, a net increase in the amount of meat that's being reared to feed pets. So actually, using the parts that um, come from the, the the human food chain. That the parts that are less valuable to humans in this society in this culture and then you mentioned packaging well, from a packaging point of view actually from the very start we set out to make the packaging as sustainable as we as we possibly could so for our wet food for example we chose to use alley trays which are infinitely recyclable rather than rather than pouches and at the time in 2013 we set up actually dog pouches were something that was uh, in, in in growth as a category but we decided to go with alley trays for that reason and then from a cardboard point of view, then we've, we're using 100% recycled cardboard in all the places that we use it. In the bags, the main pet food bag, that is the, the, the one thing that we haven't managed yet to make fully recyclable. It, it is recyclable where, in, where facilities exist, but they don't exist in the UK. So to all extents and purposes, it's not, it's not recyclable. Do you think it will be possible to ever be able to get those recyclable? Yes, it will because those technologies are improving as they as they should be. And actually, we've got new substrates in test at the moment to make sure that they perform as well in terms of preserving the food. Because the the, the reason that packaging is not recyclable is because it has a, a metallic layer in the laminate of the film, and it's, it's perhaps the same in, in chocolate. And you'll you'll know yourself. Mm -hmm. And the important thing we're trying to do is stop oxygen getting into the getting into the product and having that metallic layer. Is the, is the best oxygen barrier. The problem with the easily recyclable packages is that um, oxygen can pass very easily. Yeah, and the shelf life is then through. compromised. The shelf life is compromised. That means that, the, for example, the fats in the food can oxidise and go yep. rancid. So the first job of packaging is to protect the product. And the challenge we have as an industry is to do that in the most environmentally sustainable way. So what, so what we're doing at, at Tesla.com, we have a programme across actually, not just environmental, but we look at environmental and socially sustainable practices of how we're improving as we grow in, in all of those areas. And the we're not uh, yet B Corp certified, but that's something that we're, uh, that we're working towards. 
Which for the listeners, B Corp is it's the traceability, isn't it, at every single stage of your supply chain? Is that B Corp? Um, that would be one thing that would be part of it. But B, B Corp, Benefit Corporation, it's about um, the triple bottom line approach to business where the typical bottom line is about the economics of being a profitable and sustainable, financially sustainable business. But then it's also about being socially sustainable and environmentally sustainable. And B Corporation is an independent uh, certification standard that you have those uh, those robust little practices in place that manage the business to triple bottom line, positive triple bottom line outcomes. It can be so challenging to grow a business. I certainly struggled with my chocolate business. What skill set have you needed to be, James, where you are today? It's a it's a really interesting question. It's a hard one to answer because it, it the, I think the skill set to, to try to jump to boil it down to the first principles then I think your um <laughs> the name of your podcast is is, is brilliant <laughs> hope and patience are definitely two of them <laughs> uh, and there's a lot uh, yeah there's a, and I think actually that belief in better and belief in the future which is quite closely linked to hope in some ways is is a, is a key part of it and then being able to envisage what that looks like and be able to take the steps to move towards it and crucially bring other people along with you. And I think that's probably if I had to boil it down to one single thing, the ability to bring other people along is the most important because if if I'm lacking a skill in a, in a, in a certain area, which, mm-hmm. is, which is certainly the case in lots of areas, but then I can have it, if I know, if I know what that is, and I'm able to bring somebody along with me who does have that skill, then, uh, then, then together we don't have that gap. And so I, I, I think from a personal point of view, that's something that stood me in really good stead and helped underpin my contribution to our success at Tales.com over the last seven or eight years is being able to, to recognise what we need, which is sometimes what I don't have, and, uh, and then bring that skill along, whether it's teammates joining, uh, whether that's having the right investors, whether that's getting the right su- suppliers excited about working with us. Um, whatever there's people in all sorts of different ways are what makes the business great what would you say has tested you most you personally rather than the business so far and what have you learned from it i would say constant change which is can be exhausting and draining because of the energy the sort of internal energy it consumes to adapt to that change and the two things i've learned from it one is really to try to look forward and find things to be excited about in the future rather than looking back and missing the things that, that I used to love about it that are no longer, no longer the case, that, that we've grown beyond. So those days in, a, in the flat in, in Kingston when, mm. we were, when we were inventing, you know, that was one of the, some of the most special times of my, of my life, really, and I now miss those times. Now that we're now that we're so much bigger, but but actually to not to dwell on that and to focus on the fact that that actually it's really exciting now that we have a, a larger much larger organisation of people who care passionately about what we're doing and we're achieving so much more than we ever could have done seven years ago. So that looking forward and feeling excited and positive about the future is is one thing that that I've realised I have I have to do. And the other thing is about how then I manage my personal energy, how I find the ways to recharge when I'm feeling tired or low or grumpy. 
And I, I mentioned before that I was on um, as one of the members of staff on an expedition with uh, Rally International. Mm-hmm. And what I, one of the things I learned on that really intensive four months, seven days a week, 16 hours a day of, 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 of working was that uh, I got very attuned to when I was going off the boil because I was tired and needed a nap <laughs> or I, because I was hungry. And that, that stood me in incredibly good stead to sort of recognise those signs before I have got grumpy <laughs> and, and as they're coming. Because it's, just, it's not just about the grumpy, it's about negativity potentially affecting um, decisions and making poorer decisions because of it. What I've learned over the last um, few years at Tales.com, which has been in some ways m- more intense because of the responsibility that goes with the, with the position I have there, is other ways that I need to refuel and recharge, which is actually often about getting outside, outdoors, and exercising in a way that takes my mind off, off what might be going on at work. So that's, sometimes that's running, but more often for me it's cycling, mountain biking. Well, we're going to dip into your well-being in a minute, but just a couple more questions. Have you had any serendipitous moments with the business at all? There'll be many, I'm sure. And I, I love quotes, and there's a quote that I've seen that is attributed to Oprah Winfrey uh, mm-hmm. that is, um, luck is preparedness meeting opportunity. And so I think um, it's somewhat linked to that saying of you make your own luck. And I th- and, and so I, I, I think the, the most the serendipitous moments are, I believe, often no, no coincidence. They, they, they often come about as, through some element of preparedness in, 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 in some way. The best ones for me, that the, the moments of serendipity that have had the biggest impact on our business has been often meeting the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the right person to join the team, uh, whether it's bring, bringing the right skills or bringing the right balance in terms of their skill set. And one of the things that I am just, just love about Tuzz.com is the quality of the people that I work with there, my colleagues there, and uh, whether that's who I work directly with in the senior team or across the business. And so... There have been absolutely some key hires that came at just the right time that helped us move forward. And there have also been some that I was too late with <laughs> and, and, uh, and we suffered on for longer before I realised or found the right person. How do you cope out of your comfort zone? How do you cope with uncertainty? I've got used to uncertainty, especially over, over the last few years at, at Tales.com. And I cope with it by... Uh, hope and patience quite honestly <laughs> you know it did re- resonate for me when I sort of the name of you it's interesting to see uh, named after your your, your grandmother's yeah but there. also because I live in hope and I'm learning patience so this sort of <laughs> load. Yeah. and I think so many of us are for heaven's sake and I, it's true it's true and that's a good very good way to yeah I think you can be born the sort of person who has a predisposition to believing in hope but god patience takes a lot of work well, I don't. I mean, I don't know if we ever get patients. I know Angus Thurwell, you know, who co-founded Hotel Chocolat. He was on the show, and he was saying that he doesn't see that entrepreneurs are ever patient. And I sort of get him on that because we're all wanting to get on to the next, aren't we? In a way. Yes, I've seen so many different types of entrepreneurs actually over the last few years, and I've, I've seen definitely many, perhaps the majority, meet that mould. Joe, for example, you know, he's so entrepreneurial and, and creative. Mm-hmm. He's always on to the next idea and, and, and with enormous passion, excitement and blistering speed making it happen. 
And, and, and Graham, as a different kind of entrepreneur, is so focused on making the thing he's working on at the moment as good as it possibly can be right in the detail. And both uh, are successful in, in, in their own way. So I think, um, yeah, pa- patience is, is important. But I think when people play to their strengths rather than trying to be something they're not, then that's often when they're successful, when, whether it's uh, whether, whether it's being an entrepreneur actually or, or in, in anything else. Knowing what your strengths are and playing to them, I think is the key. Do you um, have an inner critic at all, that sort of internal negative chatter? Yeah, absolutely. And a friend of mine actually, I for a walk with the other day, is, uh, doesn't seem to have that person <laughs> on their shoulder <laughs> whispering in their ear. And I'm actually quite envious of... Uh, People who don't have it, but I definitely have an inner, inner critic, and it's. Um, How do you shut it up? Well, I try to see it in a positive way because actually that voice, that sense, is something that actually does drive me forwards. But when I need to, when it's getting on top of me, then what I try to do is that's that's when getting outdoors, taking some exercise, taking my mind off it. Um, distraction. That, that's when that becomes most important. You could, yes, so distraction is a good way to summarise that. So now we're going to head into a quick fire round, James, before we tap into our bit of chocolate. So optimist or pessimist? Realist. Okay. <laughs> Optimistic realist. Do you know, you, you caught me. I, I have uh, I often, previously when I've thought about this, I've described myself as an optimistic realist. I think I'm going to add that into my option now. <laughs> realist, optimist, <laughs> pessimist, realist. Maybe I should. Maybe I'm a complicator as well. <laughs> okay. Well, the next one. There's three options for you: introvert, extrovert, or an ambivert. I don't know what ambivert is. My vocabulary is not wide enough. It's a mix. It's, in the it's just a mix. Oh, there we are. Do you know, I was saying to somebody yesterday on Myers Briggs, I am pretty much on the in the middle between introvert and extrovert. So I. It's contextual for me. So I'm a, I'm a contextual introvert or contextual extrovert. <laughs> okay, perfectionist, non-perfectionist. Unfortunately, a perfectionist. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. So grab your bar of chocolate, James. Now, I have to say, lovely listeners, that James spent a long time letting me know what the chocolate choice was. And and lovely Emma, I kept emailing saying, can you let me know? Can you let me know? And she said, James is giving this a lot of thought. <laughs> so either he was very busy and casting the decision aside or he was giving it a lot of thought. So we're just going to hear, James, why are we tucking into Lint's caramel with a touch of sea salt bar well i i'm quite picky on, on chocolate because i don't i'm not a huge fan of it but what i love about lint chocolate is it's just so sort of smooth i think it would be called mouthfeel would be the technical term well they actually created this thing called conching which is to do with the mouthfeel funnily enough right as in the, that smooth they're known for that smoothness yeah. years yeah, ago okay. i mean Ru- what rudolph lint the guy who set it up I think in 1845, was instrumental in that. So it's very interesting that right. you, oh. you've picked up on it. A chocolate well, specialist in the making, clearly. <laughs> it, well, it was actually those, do you know those those lint balls that you get? Yes. And, and it was actually the red ones of those that for a long time was my my favourite chocolate. And then, um, but actually the lint chocolate, then you add in some uh, salted caramel into it and... Uh, yeah, that's my that's my 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 vice for sure. 
I used to do this combo when I had my chocolate business and actually it was one of my best sellers and I used to get frustrated and disappointed because ultimately it didn't take much innovation at all. (laughs) It was just quality of ingredients, but minimal, minimal, minimal input of creativity. Yes, I don't know, and that, that's slightly behind my, my, my sort of deliberation on what's my favourite chocolate, because there's a few I like. I thought, well, let's try and make it interesting, because if, it's, if I just say salted caramel chocolate, then, you know, that's, that's just so... It's like the McDonald's of chocolate, isn't it? But then I thought, no, I'll, I'll be proud. I like McDonald's of chocolate. I like salted caramel. <laughs> OK, we're going to hop into well-being now. How important is incorporating well-being into your day, and do you manage to achieve it? Uh, yeah, it's, it is very important, and uh, I do generally manage to achieve it because of I've realised, I've learned, I've noticed, and observed that I find it easier to be a better person when I have uh, spent that time. I get quite a lot actually out of the morning dog walk. Mm-hmm. And your dog is. Tell us about your dog, Jasper. He's a uh, eighteen months old, a little bit, little bit more, maybe twenty months now. Uh, Labrador, uh, working Labrador, so he's. Um, a little bit smaller than than you might be picturing in your mind, and and uh, I just just great great fun. And uh, what's quite rewarding on taking him on walks is I mean, he's recently I've got into this habit of hunting and chasing out pheasants or <laughs> other things. So I've always had him off the lead a lot, and uh, I'm just noticing how as he as he gets older, the things I knew in theory, but now having a dog again after quite a few years without one, it's quite mm-hmm. interesting seeing it play out how as he sort of gets older, the training that worked so well six months ago is completely gone and we need to retrain him again. <laughs> but because of the type of dog he is and his willingness and actually something that I care about to put time into, seeing the results of that training is in his, in his recall now, for example, which is we've been working on quite intensely over the last four or five weeks, is, is really satisfying. So that's a moment going out on the walk with him where I'm out in the fresh air early in the day, which is an early bird, I, I like that, that. That, that feeling bit of connection with nature and then uh, out with my companion and working on something together which is his recall recently but whatever it is and then um, seeing some results from that so it's quite it ticks a lot of boxes for me in terms of um, the stuff that makes me feel recharged and relaxed and then you're also talking I think earlier on about running cycling were you yeah, I, I, you know, I started running when we were doing our Series B fundraise and I found it quite, I, I just found I had to get out and sort of cast away the pressures and the frustrations and difficulties and all of that stuff that can go, goes with trying to accomplish anything difficult. And cycling was taking too much, would take too much time because I could go out and just do a quick 5k run in half an hour and have a mini recharge so I started running then and it stuck with me and I, actually you, there's still something I do every day that's a well-being thing that um, I sort of forgot about that I started at the same time which is to finish my morning shower on cold yes isn't that uh, a revolution it is and about three and a bit years later I'm still doing it and so that, you know, if I get out and I've absentmindedly forgotten I'll, um, I'll go back in and just turn it on cold it's such a good way to sort of start the day feeling energised yeah. So you do that too? Well, I, I I have to say I was doing it and I got a real buzz out of it because it made me feel so alert. And then um, I moved into where I'm living now about sort of six, five, five months ago. 
and it slightly slipped off and I tried it the other day and I don't know if it's the shower or the bathroom or what, but it just, it gave me a real shock. <laughs> and so I just thought, okay, I'll keep on the, so I splashed loads of cold water on my face, which I love. And then I run my uh, wrists under the cold tap too, but I am, you've, I am going to get back into doing the shower because it really does set you up for the day. I mean, there's this thing, isn't there, Wilhelm Hof, where people sit in buckets of iced water. That's um, right. I don't That's know right. if I'm going to rush into that because I really like the sun and the warmth. But would you do that? I, I'm curious to give it a try. My wife actually's got into she's swimming the channel later this year. In a, oh wow! Really? Team. I know. It's, it's, I think she's crazy, but. Anyway, she's all winter because the pools have been closed. They haven't been able to train, right? So they've been doing, so they're going and swimming in the local river, and and, and uh, I mean, and, and and then taking great delight in going going and doing it in the snow and the ice, which is something about acclimatizing to cold water. But it's more about that, I think. But actually, as an observer, I think they've just got addicted to jumping into freezing cold water, which is what that <laughs> Vim guy does, isn't it? So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it's a healthy addiction. I think there's wild swimming, isn't there, where people go off and uh, swim in in wild yeah. places, whatever the weather. But um, I, I I do it clearly is good for one's brain. What triggers your stress, and how does it affect you physically, mentally, or spiritually? It's yeah. Stress. What triggers my stress is feeling out of control. So if it's a situation I can't really influence, and it feels like it's a you know a juggernaut bearing down on me, and there's nothing I can do about it, mm-hmm. that that's the, that's the, the most stressful situations I've, I find myself in. And what I try and do then is I, I double down and try and figure a way out and try to solve that problem so that I regain a sufficient amount of control to improve the situation. And finding that breakthrough moment is, yeah, that's characteristic, I suppose, for lots of problems that seem unsolvable. If I, could, if I really can't, then I will, often I will have spoken to somebody, like a mentor, which I, there's lots of people I, I, I know that I would consider mentors because the people who I've worked with in the past, perhaps they've been my boss in the past, or they've been an investor in Tales.com or there's somebody at Nestle Prino who's, whose opinion I would value on a certain subject. So I'll go to the person that I know who I think will be best placed to, to give me the counsel that will help. And that actually often helps me regain perspective or figure out something to try or to, to, to have the serenity to accept there's nothing I can do about it, such as life. Um, focus on the next thing. So, yeah, that's that's how I try to deal with the situations that cause me the most stress. Do you ever have problems with sleeping at all? And if you do, what do you do about it? Not, not really. I'm typically been good at getting to sleep and staying asleep. What I do sometimes find if I wake up after. Like I try and get up somewhere between five and six. If I wake up like half full five and the thing that could be stressing me pops into my mind, then I probably won't go back to sleep, but I'll just try and get up because I like it. when I, I find it very hard to get out of bed once I'm up. I like being up and feeling like I'm getting a head start on the day. If something, if I wake up at three in the morning and the thing pops into my head that might keep me awake, I've I've learned how to stop thinking about it and it's by trying to overpower it really by thinking about something else which is which, <laughs> which is, then could get you worrying about which, something else well no i think about something else that's just that, that's just that's nice like a fun thing to think about and it's normally mountain biking and thinking about some particular trail i might 
not might particularly like. So, James, what music makes you feel good, and what book would you miss if it wasn't on your bookshelf? I'm assuming you have a bookshelf. <laughs> I do. Well, yes, yeah, I do. Um, uh, so, music. I like all types of music, particularly music that makes me makes me feel good, and that's stuff often that's slightly higher tempo, and it will have a, a good rhythm or beat to it, or a, and some sort of melody, and and so things that I particularly like. I still love Guns N' Roses. <laughs> the first <laughs> concert I ever went to when I really? was fourteen at Wembley Stadium, and uh, it gave me tinnitus that I also still have <laughs> today. <laughs> But um, yeah, you know, so, so that one of those, you know, huge uh, anthems is something I'd love. And then, but I also love house music. You know, late nineties, early two thousands house music, and mm-hmm. something like left left field left, leftism. Oh like yeah, nineteen ninety six, so ahead of its time. Still fantastic to listen to today. And um, yeah, so that stuff gets me absolutely helps me feel good. And you know, on the well being thing and dealing with stress, I think music can be a really good way to help you, you absolutely sort of physically come out of it books do you know i don't i don't really dip in and out of books i've got back into reading lately and one one author who i particularly appreciated was ken follett okay and his series of books that sort of span as one uh, pillars of the earth and how they built this cathedral over over sort of 50 60 years and that, that was a just fascinating like a great story but then also fascinating because it kind of tells you about medieval architecture which who would have thought that would ever be interesting but read but can follow the pillars of the earth and you'll okay well i'm sure you'll find it interesting too i'll put that on my list what advice would you give james for anyone who's thinking about setting up their business or running their own business at the moment be very very clear on how you're serving your customers and where the opportunities are for improvement in that are from the customer's perspective and make sure you've got the right people with you to 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 make that happen and finally where have you had to have hope and also patience in the very early days of, of tells.com when we um when it wasn't working and we had to with hindsight iterate and find product market fit definitely had to have both hope and patience in in those days. Hope because it's only when you're through it that you know you've been doing the right things. So you can only hope that you are whilst you're doing them. And patience because actually, particularly for our product with a monthly subscription cycle, it takes an awful long time to get enough data, enough understanding. The repeat purchases only come once every month to understand whether you're really making a difference for customers or not. And where can our lovely listeners find out more about Tales.com? Well, for sure, come to our website. Find loads of uh, uh, information there, not just about what we do, but also resources for helping give your dog a happy well-being. And then uh, our um, all social channels, actually, uh, you can find us at Tales.com underscore UK. So thank you, James, so much for joining us on this episode. I have learned loads and I... I loved meeting Mel on the panel that I was sitting on for the Bread and Jam Fest. And I've wanted to interview you ever since then. So (laughs) thank you so much for sparing your really valuable time. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure. No, Mel was uh, equally um, positive about uh, about you. So we're really pleased that you and flattered you wanted to, to, to speak to us. So thank you very much, Amelia. 
Anyway, before I go, it's time for my book recommendation and quote for this episode. So the recommendation for the book is Fats That Harm, Fats That Heal by Udo Erasmus. I first came across this book when I studied nutrition at the University of Westminster. It's an absolute gem. It helped me understand more about really good fats and fats that are more harmful and how your body metabolizes them as well. So do explore that if you haven't already. And the quote is from Simon Sinek. And it's opportunity is the finding of a new route to a known destination. A huge thank you for finding the show. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Don't forget to follow to get the latest episode. And if you're enjoying the show, it would be truly fab if you could rate and review it or better still share it with folk who may value a gem or two. Any book recommendations, quotes, songs can be found in the show notes and on the website too. Let me know what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and none of. Or if you'd like a shout out to, just ping me a DM on Insta or email. Until the next time, however tough these times get, keep that very special inner sparkle you have shining. Hope and Patience with Amelia Rope. Join the conversation at hopeandpatience.co.uk. Find Amelia on Facebook at Hope and Patience or on Twitter and Instagram at Amelia underscore Rope.